Is it fair to say, Representative Green, that from election night of 2020 until January 6, 2021, your personal opinion and your wish was that Congress not certify Joe Biden as the winner of the 2020 election? Uh, no, that's not accurate. Oh, it's not? Are you sure it's not, Marge? Are you sure it's not accurate? Because we got some videotape. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Just saying. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Santa Barbara, 98.7, San Diego's 93.7, and Ridgecrest and China Lakes, 99.5 FM. Also, Red Bluff and Red in California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. Great terrestrial affiliates all. We're also streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Like it or not, we're back. Welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, it looks like looks like we chose a, a, a good week, Desi Doyen, for spring break last week. <laughs> I know. N- not much happened. Not much good happened <laughs> the entire week. Well, I was going to say, uh, well, not much good happened. That's true. Yeah. But a lot did certainly a happen. A lot did happen. And I'm glad we took off the week. Uh, thanks to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us on several of those days, largely, as I say, because there really was a little good news to talk about. But today, I am happy to deliver some good news before we get to my guest today momentarily, uh, whose news may or may not be good, depending on how you look at it, following his organization's attempt to block Georgia Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene from the ballot this year, charging that she violated the Constitution's insurrection disqualification clause. That's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, And all of that, that challenge, led to her testimony under oath in a Georgia courtroom on Friday as the first member of Congress who participated in the January 6, 2021 insurrection to have to answer questions under oath about it. The uh, co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, the group attempting to block a number of these insurrectionists from the ballot this uh, in these uh, midterm elections this year, uh, will join us shortly with reaction to Friday's hearing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
and uh, and several of the other ongoing challenges to candidates around the country that are being brought forward by Free Speech for People. But as to today's good news, there is some. Uh, we've we got to start in France, frankly, uh, as and as as the France and the rest of Europe and the rest of the free democracy loving world is breathing a sigh of relief today. Uh, center right pre- French president Emmanuel Macron comfortably won a second term as president on Sunday, according to exit polling triumphing over Marine Le Pen, his far-right challenger after a campaign where his promise of stability prevailed over the temptation of an extremist lurch to the fascist populist right. Projections at the close of voting on Sunday, which are generally reliable in Europe, where they vote on hand-counted and hand-marked paper ballots, Those projections showed that uh, Macron gained uh, a little bit more than 58 percent of the vote to Ms. Le Pen's little more than 41 percent of the vote. His victory was uh, narrower than it was against Le Pen back in 2017 when the margin was about 66 to 34 in favor of Macron over Le Pen. But it was wider than had been uh, expected just a couple of weeks ago when people were very concerned that this might be uh, in her third try. This might be uh, Le Pen's chance to become the president of France. Speaking to a crowd massed at the Champs de Mars, apologies for my French, uh, in front of a twinkling Eiffel Tower, a solemn Macron said his victory was, quote, for a more independent France and a stronger Europe. He added, "Our quote, our country is riddled with so many doubts, so many divisions. We will have to be strong, but nobody will be left by the side of the road, he vowed. Le Pen conceded defeat in her third attempt to become president. I don't know why. I, she didn't, what, she didn't pretend that it was stolen and call for a violent overthrow of the government? Some Trumper she turned out to be. She vowed to fight on, however, to secure a large number of representatives in legislative elections in June that are coming up. Declared, uh, She also declared, quote, French people have this evening shown their desire for a strong counterpower to Emmanuel Macron. I guess by electing Emmanuel Macron at a critical moment in Europe with fight fighting raging in Ukraine after Russia's brutal disgusting, horrendous invasion of their neighbor. Well, France soundly rejected a candidate that was hostile to NATO, to the European Union, to the U.S., and to its fundamental values that hold that no French citizens should be discriminated against because they are Muslim. Of course, Russia and Vladimir Putin had supported uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, candidacy. Macron, who was not particularly popular... Uh, in uh, in France, he succeeded where other French presidents have not recently, however. N- no French president had succeeded in being re-elected for a second term in the past 20 years, not since 2002, let alone by a 17-point margin. Macron's achievement in securing five more years in power, as the Times reports today, reflects his effective stewardship over the COVID-19 crisis, his rekindling of the economy, and his political agility in occupying the entire center of the political spectrum, or at least getting enough of them to turn out to vote for him on Sunday. 
over the far right winger. So whether you've been following that election or not, and whether you, you, you like a center-right politician in France or not, I am here to tell you that his victory is great news, in fact, for democracy in Europe and here at home. As a victory by Le Pen, uh, again, her third try for this uh, this longtime far-right extremist in the mold of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, that uh, a victory for her would have sent shockwaves across Europe today, across Europe, across the U.S., and frankly, across the globe. So it appears that enough voters in France, even if they were not crazy about Macron, held their nose and voted for him anyway as the much lesser of two evils, which, by the way, I hope might be a lesson for American voters. Just a reminder, uh, as Desi always says, uh, when given a choice between just two candidates with a possibility of winning, the lesser of two evils is what, Des? Still less evil. Less evil. Thank you. And I will happily support less evil in this world any time. So in any event, that was one <clears throat> looming disaster that uh, happily we do not have to worry about today, at least for the moment. Uh, and then some other very good news, uh, breaking news today. A New York judge on Monday found former President Donald Trump in contempt of court. He said in motion $10,000 daily fines at this point against the failed former president and real estate mogul for failing to respond to a subpoena issued by the state's attorney general as part of a civil investigation into Trump's business dealings, including apparent bank tax and insurance fraud. Judge Arthur Engeron said a contempt finding was appropriate because Trump and his lawyers had shown that they had conducted a uh, had not shown, I should say, had not shown that they had conducted a proper search for records that are sought by the subpoena issued by New York State Attorney General Letitia James in her civil probe of uh, Trump's apparent fraud. Judge Engeron said in a Manhattan courtroom that was packed with reporters but absent of Donald Trump, quote, Mr. Trump, I know you take your business seriously and I take mine seriously before he held Trump in contempt and banged his gavel. The judge said he was holding Trump in civil contempt until the terms of the subpoena are met. Now, while that is good news, I should note, as I did when James, uh, Attorney General James initially sought these contempt charges from the judge requesting a $10,000 daily fine, that in truth, you know, ten, while $10,000 could certainly add up, it certainly would add up to, uh, to you and me, on the first day alone, frankly, uh, it could also be seen, frankly, as a drop in the bucket for Trump, who has amassed a campaign war chest of about one hundred and fifty million dollars since leaving office, which uh, since he has yet to declare his candidacy for 2024 means that unless I'm mistaken, he can actually use that money for anything he damn well pleases, including paying off civil contempt fines against him. So, you know, it would take 10 days of uh, defying this uh, subpoena and this contempt charge uh, before he reached $100,000 in fines under the judge's ruling. But, you know, it would take 100 days to even reach $1 million. 
He could go nearly a full year before he reached $3 million out of his $150 million war chest, which he is filling up continuously every day by uh, selling all kinds of merchandise crap and all kinds of lies to his uh, supporters. It doesn't sound like the kind of punitive fine that would uh, actually force him to produce those documents. Well, we will see. Uh, I mean, because if there's anything that Donald Trump cannot stand, it is losing money, even if it is free money that has been given to him by his duped followers. So uh, this is, you know, even though it's only $10,000 a day, I'm sure it will drive him crazy at the very least, even if that's not a very far drive. Uh, Trump has been fighting James in court over this investigation, which he's called a politically motivated witch hunt. That's original. He uses that, of course, to describe any such attempt to hold him accountable for any unlawful behavior of his, of which there is much, whether it is uh, in, in criminal or civil court or anywhere else. James said in a press release after the judge's ruling, quote, today justice prevailed. For years, Donald Trump has tried to evade the law and stop our lawful investigation into him and his company's financial dealings. Today's ruling makes clear no one is above the law, she said. Lawyers for Trump argued that they conducted a thorough search for the records that are being sought by investigators, but they found no new documents to provide. Judge Engeron decided that the lawyers had not provided sufficient detail about how they searched for those documents. The contempt order, however, could be short-lived if Alina Haba, one of Trump's lawyers, files a sworn statement detailing every step that was taken to locate potential documents the judge might be satisfied, according to lawyers close to the case, <clears throat> as reported by The New York Times. Haba also said she intended to appeal the ruling. She insisted all documents responsive to the subpoena were produced to the attorney general months ago. This does not even come close to meeting the standard on a motion for contempt, she said. The ruling and uh, the judge's comments represent a significant victory, however, for Attorney General James, whose office is conducting a civil investigation into whether Trump falsely inflated the value of his assets in annual financial statements. In January, James said that her office had concluded that the Trump organization had engaged in, quote, fraudulent or misleading practices involving the uh, his financial statements, his annual financial statements that he would inflate when he wanted to get loans, that he would deflate when he wanted to pay and he had to pay his taxes. Uh, but James said she would continue to investigate before deciding whether to sue Trump or his company. Although James does not have the authority to file criminal charges, her civil inquiry is running parallel to a criminal investigation being led by the Manhattan District Attorney that, yes, is ongoing. The new Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, says he's examining some of the same conduct. So civil charges, just to explain the difference against Trump, if uh, James decides to file them, civil uh, charges could result in very heavy fines or even dissolution of the Trump organization entirely. Criminal charges, on the other hand, can result in Trump and even his kids, Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, who are all executives at the company, uh, could result in all of them going to jail. 
James has sought to question the former president and two of his children, Ivanka and Don Jr., as part of her inquiry. She already uh, spoke with Eric back in the fall of 2020 after he uh, fought off subpoenas unsuccessfully. Of course, Trump's family lawyers are trying to block all of that questioning. In March, Engeron sided with uh, Attorney General James ordering Trump and his children to be deposed. The Trumps have appealed that ruling. That's where we are on that for the moment. They really don't want to talk about this for some reason under oath. This month, lawyers from James's office said that Trump had declined to turn over the documents in response to eight separate requests. Trump's lawyers had said uh, that he did not have any of the documents that James was requesting and that any such documents, if they existed, would be in the possession of the Trump organization, not in the possession of Donald Trump, where, of course, there is no way for him to get them if they're being held by the Trump organization, right? Lawyers for James's office have said in uh, in one filing, for example, that a filing cabinet at the company that they know about contains the former president's files and uh, noted that specifically he used post-it notes to pass messages to his employees. He avoided email and text messaging, but he used post-it notes, and apparently those post-it notes may all be filled into this uh, filing cabinet. Trump's lawyer said that a file of Trump's correspondence had not been searched, in part because the business had determined that Trump was not involved in preparing his own financial statements. So they didn't bother to look at the filing cabinet because he had nothing to do with those final financial statements. The attorney general called that assertion improbable, noting the statement affixed to the front of those annual financial statements that say every time, quote, Donald J. Trump is responsible for the preparation and fair presentation of the valuations. So, uh, oops. <laughs> well, you know, just having his signature on a legally binding document that says he's responsible for what's contained in that document. Well, you know, everybody knows that those don't apply to Donald J. Trump. He's special. Yeah, you're so cynical, Desi Doyen. <laughs> you're so cynical. Well, I mean, cynical. it is kind of, you know, it's I, a I legally binding signature. Huh? I don't see how they could possibly have argued that. And yet they did. Anyway. And yet they did. Uh, anyway, uh, this fight... Uh, is over subpoena documents, but the actual case, this fight that has resulted in his $10,000 daily fine that Donald Trump will now have to pay off, uh, that's over the subpoena documents. The actual case against him uh, for these uh, potential tax uh, fraud charges, uh, that appears to be ready to move to a new phase itself, according to a comment from the assistant attorney general, Kevin Wallace. Uh, he said, according to AP, quote, we plan to bring enforcement action in the near future. So they plan to bring enforcement action uh, in other words, they plan to sue the former president and or his company and or his kids in civil litigation in the very near future. And remember, this is the office, the New York attorney general, which already shut down Trump's phony charity, the Trump Foundation, his phony uh, Trump University. That was all shut down by the New York attorney general's office. And that same office is taking on the National Rifle Association, one of the most powerful uh, groups in the country, even as we speak, forcing them into bankruptcy as well. So stay tuned. 
to what's going on in New York. Uh, as I have been mentioning for months now, yes, accountability is coming for this former president. Will it come uh, for his corrupt acolytes in Congress? Well, uh, you know, the ones who helped him inside a deadly riot on January 6, 2021. That is still a very open question. Unfortunately for that, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with the head of the organization that is leading the challenges to several of those Congress members, including Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who was the first to date to answer questions under oath about her involvement with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in an Atlanta courtroom on Friday where her eligibility to run for office for re-election is being challenged. That story is straight ahead with John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. On Friday in a courtroom in Atlanta, Georgia's U.S. rep from the state's 14th congressional district, Marjorie Taylor Greene, became the first sitting member of Congress to answer questions under oath regarding their involvement in the attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election via cooperation with Donald Trump and with the deadly January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol. The hearing before state administrative law judge Charles Boudreau, uh, who's also a corporate tax attorney, by the way, uh, that was part of a challenge on Friday by uh, voters in the far-right Republican Congresswoman's Congressional District, a challenge to her eligibility to stand for re-election after the, the voters alleged that Green violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the so-called Insurrection Disqualification Clause, which bars those who have previously taken the oath. Uh, of office from serving after having, according to the Constitution, quote, engaged in insurrection uh, or rebellion or having given aid or aid or comfort to the enemies of same. On Friday, Green was confronted by plaintiff's attorneys over past social media posts advocating violence against Democrats Prior to uh, being elected to her first term in Congress in 2020, uh, Green had repeatedly indicated support for executing, yes, executing prominent Democratic politicians back in 2018 and 2019. Green spent a lot of time saying she did not recall or did not remember when asked very specific questions uh, what were undoubtedly memorable moments, such as suggesting to the president of the United States that he should declare martial law to prevent the peaceful transfer of power uh, or to the uh, or to the winner of the 2020 election, Joe Biden. 
But not before, but she appeared to out and out perjure herself in response to at least one of the questions from attorney Andrew Chelly regarding her charge that Democratic U.S. House Rep. Nancy Pelosi had committed treason, which is punishable by death, by the way. Green initially denied that she had made any such statement before it became clear that the plaintiffs, uh, well, actually had brought receipts with them. In fact, you think that Speaker Pelosi is a traitor to the country, right? Uh, you're, I'm not answering that question. It's speculation. You, you've, you've said that, haven't you, Ms. Green, that she's a traitor to the country? No, I haven't said that. Okay. Put up Plaintiff's Exhibit 5, please. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> Hold on now. I believe by not upholding the, uh, sec securing the border, that that violates her oath of office. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not interested in her oath of office. I'm interested in that you said that she's a traitor to our country. So wait, hold on now. Maybe I did say that. I well, suddenly remember saying yeah, someone is a traitor to the country. Now that you're going to put up the video. In fact, uh, Green said precisely what the attorney had asked her about uh, and which she originally denied. Here she is saying exactly that in January of 2019. She's a traitor to our country. She's guilty of treason. She took an oath to protect American citizens and uphold our laws. And she gives aid and comfort to our enemies who illegally invade our land. That's what treason is. And by our law, representatives and senators can be kicked out and no longer serve in our government. And it's a, it's a crime punishable by death, is what treason is. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason, and we want her out of our government. She's held her seat of power for 32 years. She's 78 years old. She is dying in Congress. We are fed up with these corrupt politicians that hang on to their power just to make themselves rich. So uh, didn't isn't it true, uh, Ms. Green, that you said Nancy Pelosi was a traitor to our country? No, I haven't said that. Turns out apparently she did. And as a matter of fact, before she ran for Congress in 2020, Green created a White House petition back in January of 2019 to impeach the House Speaker for, quote, crimes of treason. But I guess it's easy to forget that sort of thing. I don't know. Green also denied having any knowledge of liking a post on her personal Facebook page that advocated Pelosi be shot in the head and executed. In one post uh, from that same time uh, in 2019, Green's account liked a comment that had said, quote, a bullet to the head would be quicker than impeachment to remove Pelosi. By the way, you can't impeach a sitting congressperson. Green uh, claimed she had no idea who liked that comment on her page in her name. That pattern would repeat itself through several hours of testimony when she claimed both that anyone who posted on uh, or took actions in her name on her social media uh, pages did so with her approval and that she had no idea if she approved of many of the things that were posted or liked on her own social media. 
Of course, that all took place before she became uh, a congresswoman. The comments about Nancy Pelosi well before she uh, well, before the violent attempts to steal the 2020 election for Donald Trump, for which plaintiffs are holding uh, or trying to hold Green accountable for under the Constitution's 14th Amendment, barring those who engage in insurrection from holding office. But that was hardly the only time that Green declined under oath to own up to her past or her more recent statements. She repeatedly declined entreaties to restate, as she has repeatedly, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. She said that multiple times publicly, but she had a hard time saying it on the stand for some reason. After the exchange about her Pelosi comments, Green began offering more I don't recalls and I don't remembers. One of them came when she was asked whether she spoke with anyone in the White House about large upcoming demonstrations on January 6. I don't remember, Green said. But a news release on her website details a meeting that she had at the White House on January 3, three days before January 6, which she described in an accompanying video as, quote, a great planning session for our January 6th objection. Just finished with our meetings here at the White House this afternoon. We had a great planning session for our January 6th objection. We aren't going to let this election be stolen by Joe Biden and the Democrats. President Trump won by a landslide. Call your House reps. Call your senators from your states. We've got to make sure they're on board and we already have a lot of people engaged. Okay, stay tuned. Now, Green also said she did not remember whether she had spoken to Congress members Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs, both of Arizona, about the demonstrations. Their eligibility for re-election is also being challenged under the Insurrection Disqualification Clause, and there was some news on that as well on Friday, which I will get to in a bit. Two organizers of the January 6 rallies have said that they were in touch with all three of the members and more on planning Green was asked about other talks with the White House, specifically whether she ever recommended that Donald Trump declare martial law. Her lawyer tried to object to those questions by claiming executive privilege. By the way, her lawyer also worked for Trump. But Green ultimately answered, sort of, saying, I don't recall. Responding to the same question again by saying, I don't remember. On, you know, one might think that, you know, recommending to the president of the United States that he declare martial law, that that would be a memorable moment for a first term member of Congress or even for a 20th term member of Congress, for that matter. But it just did not ring a bell to Marge on Friday. On Monday, however, CNN released a trove of text messages to and from Trump's then White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. One of them. As it turns out, was from, guess who? Marjorie Taylor Greene. On January 17, even after the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol had failed to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory, Greene texted to Meadows, quote, The only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial law. I just wanted you to tell him they stole this election. We all know they will destroy our country next. Easy to forget such a thing, I guess. Green also couldn't recall invoking 1776 as a battle cry ahead of January 6th. 
uh, when Congress was set to certify the 2020 results, the plaintiffs proceeded to helpfully roll a clip of a Newsmax interview on January 5, showing Green declaring that January 6 would in fact be, quote, our 1776 moment. Did she ever talk to other people, including lawmakers like Paul Gosar, about there being large gatherings scheduled for January 6? I don't recall, she said. Did she ever have a discussion with anyone about how there could be a risk of violence happening that day? I don't recall, she said. Did Stop the Steal activist Ali Alexander invite her to the pro-Trump rally that he'd organized for that day? Guess what she said. I don't remember tweeting that. I don't recall. So I don't recall. I don't remember. I don't remember, but that's what this says. I don't recall. You don't You don't recall one way or the other? I don't recall. <laughs> I do not recall that, no. I don't. I don't recall. I don't recall. I, I have no idea. I don't think so. I don't recall. Do you, okay. So you're not denying it. You're just saying you don't recall. I don't recall. She didn't recall much of anything that the plaintiffs asked about, but her memory turned out to be sharp as it could be when asked by her defense attorney whether she recalled statements and tweets after the insurrection, which she appeared to try and condemn the violence of January 6, calls for peaceful protests that appear to have happened only after the violent attempt to steal the 2020 election. Did she ever call for violence? If needed, to get what Republicans needed? No, she insisted. Quote, never, ever, unquote. She only ever called for peaceful protests. But the facts, in fact, her own videotapes would seem to suggest otherwise, both before she became a congresswoman and after. For example, back in 2019, she said, See, all of us together, when we rise up, we can end all of this. We can end it. We can do it peacefully. We can. I hope it doesn't have to. We don't have to do it the other way. I hope not. But we should feel like we will if we have to. And then that was 2019. But just days before the uh, just days before the January 6 insurrection. This is an important time in our history. We can't allow this just to just to be gone you know just to let it go you can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like joe biden wants and allow him to become our president you just can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like joe biden wants and allow him to become our president those were just some of the times that marjorie taylor green appears to have called for violence even though on the stand under oath she insisted she only ever called for peaceful protests in what she described repeatedly as her First Amendment free speech rights. Georgia's administrative law judge, Charles Boudreau, uh, who was appointed by a Republican governor in the Peach State, uh, he has asked for detailed briefs from both plaintiffs and defendants following Friday's hearing and will make a recommendation to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, as to whether he believes Green should be disqualified or allowed to run in the state's upcoming primary elections on May 24. Raffensperger, as I understand it, will then be able to take Boudreaux's recommendations or ignore them. 
As noted, the challenge to Green's eligibility for office is just one of several filed by voters around the country against several elected Republican officials who are alleged to have engaged in the January 6th insurrection. Congressman uh, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar in Arizona are all facing similar complaints, as is Mark Fincham, a far-right uh, Arizona state rep whose candidacy for secretary of state in Arizona has been endorsed by Donald Trump. All of these voter challenges are being led by freespeechforpeople.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, good government watchdog and election integrity organization. If you watched Friday's hearing in uh, Georgia, the opening statement was made by Free Speech for People's Ron Fine, a frequent guest on this program, uh, who, was mo who had most recently joined us last month to discuss the news that a Trump-appointed federal judge in North Carolina had dismissed the challenge to Madison Cawthorn's eligibility to run and uh, about the emergency appeal that the group has filed in response. Today, we're joined by another somewhat regular guest on this program over the years, Free Speech for People's co-founder and president and longtime constitutional law expert, John Bonifaz. Oh, Counselor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Do we have John? Uh-oh, where is John? I hope we have John. I don't think I have John. We're going to take a quick break in that case. Let's do that. Take a quick break, and we will come back with John Bonifaz once we somehow fix these phone lines. Oh, they always do me in. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. You are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At The Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We will see. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I think we've got it sorted out now. John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org, uh, the national nonprofit that is challenging Marjorie Taylor Greene, questioned her under oath in Atlanta on Friday uh, and uh, challenging other Republican Congress members who, uh, who participated in the insurrection as being disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Let's see if we got him. John Bonifaz, do we have you here? I'm here, Brad. Good to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Sorry about that uh, mix-up there. Uh, it, it was a long hearing, John, uh, on uh, on Friday. Marjorie Taylor Greene was on the stand for about three hours, I think. Uh, it's difficult to sum up all that actually happened. Uh, hopefully you heard m much of my uh, summary there in the previous segment. Did I miss anything critical in that summary as you see it? No, I think you covered it. She was incredibly evasive. And that will have to be factored into the judge's decision-making as to whether or not she was a credible witness. In our view, she was not. Uh, she clearly was not remembering any of her tweets, any of her statements, any of her videos under cross-examination. But as you highlight, when it came time for her attorney to ask her questions about statements she's made, she seemed to remember very clearly yes. those statements. So that just goes to the credibility question. And, of course, the news today uh, demonstrates 
that she was not credible on that line of questioning around whether she advocated in any way for the president, former president, to impose martial law on the American people to try to stay in power. She was asked a series of pointed questions on that, including whether she discussed that with the former Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and her response mm-hmm. to that was, I don't remember. Now, it is just frankly not believable that you would discuss that very topic with a White House official, and then you would not remember it mm-hmm. uh, a year and a half later. It's not, it's not believable. And, and how does that, you know, because a lot of times uh, under oath in depositions, I was, de- I was deposed one time years and years ago on, on something, you know, and I was advised by my attorney, hey, if you don't know the answer to something, just say, I don't know, or I don't recall, or I don't remember that. Now, I remembered everything, so that wasn't a problem, and I wasn't trying to be evasive. But how does a judge, uh, this happens all the time, where, you know, plaintiffs or defendants will say, I don't recall. How, how, you know, she said that, I don't know how many dozens of times, how does a judge deal with that if, in fact, she says, I don't recall? I mean, can't he take her at her word when she says that? Well, we presented an enormous amount of evidence into the record. He had a very big binder, if people were watching, on his desk there. All that were exhibits that we had presented prior to the hearing, mm-hmm. her tweets, her statements. We presented videos uh, that he had. And so based on the evidence we presented, irrespective of her testimony, mm-hmm. the evidence we presented demonstrated overwhelmingly that she did help facilitate and support the insurrection on January 6th, that she did, of course, take an oath of office to defend the Constitution and then turned around and engaged in insurrection, and that the January 6th uh, rebellion at the, at the Capitol was, in fact, an insurrection. All of that's in the record. So the judge has what he needs to demonstrate and, and, and identify that she is, in fact, disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and we believe he should do that. But we also think when you look at her answers based on all that evidence, that it's not credible and she should be treated as a witness who is not credible. Uh, is it is it possible, and maybe this is a separate issue, but, I mean, it seems to me she perjured herself on a number of occasions. Uh, is that somehow a part of this, or is this merely a hearing to determine ballot el- eligibility, end of story, she can lie all she wants on the stand? Well, look, I think the question of perjury is something that state authorities can take up if they choose to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't. The judge in this case does not have to find that she perjured herself in order for him to find that she's mm-hmm. disqualified. So it's a different, uh, a different question, really, mm-hmm. for him. But, but I do think that it's, it's incredibly evasive what she was doing there. She was clearly trained to do that prior to the hearing. Uh, and I think the martial law line of questioning in particular highlighted how she was intentionally being evasive because, again, there's just no way someone 
ask the president or the chief of staff to impose martial law on the American people, and then a year and a half, you don't remember that. One of the uh, things, John Bonifaz, that I've heard from people, and I've discussed this when I've explained the uh, uh, the, the challenge to uh, to Green in Georgia and Cawthorn in North Carolina and, and, and Biggs and so forth in Arizona, is, you know, they respond, and, and, and as did uh, 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 Green's attorney, that, oh, she, you know, there is no, she hasn't been charged with any crime. That, uh, that, you know, her testimony proved she did not incite the insurrection. But that's not actually the bar in the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is it? Correct. And I'm glad you asked that question, Brad. You're absolutely right. There's a separate matter under the federal code, which is a federal crime, mm-hmm. to incite an insurrection. That's not what's at stake here. It's not a requirement under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that she be convicted of that federal crime. And incitement is not the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's whether you engaged in it. This was mm-hmm. designed initially to deal after the Civil War with all the high-level Confederate officials in positions of government power who had taken an oath of office to defend the Constitution and turned around and engaged in the country's first insurrection. But mm-hmm. it was not made solely to apply to them. It was prospective, despite what that Trump appointee in North Carolina yes. has ruled This section of the Constitution was designed to address future insurrections as well, and the debate on the drafting of the 14th Amendment shows that. So the framers of the 14th Amendment knew that they needed something in the 14th Amendment that would protect the republic against future insurrectionists as well. And there's no requirement in that language that there be a prior conviction in court. There's no requirement that Congress take some action first. The only requirement is that you take an oath of office to defend the Constitution, then you turn around and engage in insurrection. And that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene has done. And that's why she's disqualified under this clause. Now, I think we talked about this with uh, Ron Fine, uh, your colleague at freespeechforpeople.org, who gave the opening statement uh, on Friday. But uh, as long as you mention it, John Bonifaz, that that ruling in the federal court in North Carolina regarding the Madison Cawthorn challenge, um, her attorney, James Bopp, her defense attorney, uh, Green's defense attorney, who was also representing uh, Cawthorn, as I recall, he argued, as he did in North Carolina in the federal case, that the Amnesty Act of 1872, which one is it? There were several. Correct, 1872. 1872, which gave amnesty to former Confederate soldiers to run for office. That's that somehow applied prospectively for all time to any future office holders who then went on to engage in insurrection right. or rebellion, which... You know, this Trump judge in North Carolina actually bought. But how could that possibly be true, John? Wouldn't that simply allow an act of Congress to supersede a constitutional clause or a mandate? Well, that's exactly the point, right, is that under Article 5 of the Constitution, there's only one way to amend or change the Constitution. That's through a constitutional amendment. And that's not what Congress enacted. The Amnesty Act was a statute And, in fact, it was four years after that very same Congress had enacted the 14th Amendment. And the debate on the floor of the Congress went into specifically this question, whether the Amnesty Act would somehow be, you know, only uh, dealing with Confederates or whether it would be prospective as well. 
And in fact, uh, there was some humor on the floor when there was a suggestion that it would be perspective into time, and, and everybody laughed at that idea uh, that it would, uh, you know, basically mm-hmm. provide amnesty for all future insurrections. So, uh, you know, the legislative history of the Amnesty Act of 1872, the text of the Amnesty Act of 1872, the legislative history and text of the 14th Amendment, none of this uh, justifies a decision by that judge that somehow the Amnesty Act of 1872, which protect, protected ex-Confederates, also protects Madison Cawthorn. That's why we're appealing that ruling. Mm-hmm. We're on an expedited track with the U.S. Court of Appeals with argument on May 3rd, and we're hopeful that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals will reverse that decision and that we will have, on behalf of our voter clients, our, our opportunity to have this challenge heard before the North Carolina State Board of Elections. I should note that a federal court in Georgia uh, found exactly the opposite of that federal court in North Carolina. Uh, the judge in uh, Georgia did not buy that that idea that the Amnesty Act somehow uh, you know, gives amnesty for all future insurrectionists. Um, Correct. And she issued a 73-page ruling uh-huh. on that and many other counts that James Bob had presented to the court on behalf of his client, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of which were similar to what he presented to that judge in North Carolina who ruled from the bench after that hearing mm-hmm. uh, with his ruling solely on the 1872 Act. Now, Green uh, on Friday seemed to be arguing or trying to argue that anything she might have said to encourage an insurrection in any way is actually just free speech. Her right under the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Your response to that, John Boniface? Well, we know that there's no such thing as a First Amendment right to incite violence. There's no such thing as a First Amendment right to yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, this is completely contrary to First Amendment jurisprudence. So she does not have the ability to hide behind the claim First Amendment right here. Her actions, her conduct, all this points to her engagement in the insurrection. And the 14th Amendment uh, of the Constitution makes clear that if you engaged in it, uh, then, then you, in fact, are disqualified. And that includes her statements that promoted the insurrection leading up to it, her 1776 moment statement, which mm-hmm. clearly was code language in terms of going into the, you know, into the events of that day, uh, recognizing that they didn't get their way with the objections, that, that a violent overthrow might be necessary. That, that was all uh, laid out. And then, of course, as you played the tape, she said, we will not transfer power peacefully. peacefully. Right. She said those words. And, you know, she was very big at the hearing and saying, I, I've, I've talked about everybody being peaceful, but not once she, could she present a, a tape or a statement made prior to the insurrection mm-hmm. where she was saying, we, need, oh, we all need to be peaceful. Yeah. Never. I don't think there's any evidence of her ever saying something like that. No. The only time she even discussed peace was after this disaster on January Correct. 6th. Um, John, also on Friday, three other candidates whose eligibility that free speech for people has challenged, uh, Congressman Andy Biggs uh, and and Paul Gosar in Arizona and Arizona State Rep Mark Fincham, who's running for secretary of state. Uh, there are voters challenging their eligibility under the same clause of the Constitution. You are supporting that effort as well. But they had that challenge dismissed on Friday by a Maricopa County Superior Court judge who said the 
uh, disqualification clause in the uh, in the Constitution does not allow a private citizen to sue to prevent a candidate for running from running for office. Uh, he emphasized the court was not taking a position on whether uh, these three men were engaged in insurrection, but just that there is no right for these voters to actually sue. Uh, so uh, is there no grounds for a private citizen to sue? And if that is true, what who does have such ground to uh, seek disqualification under the clause in the Constitution? Well, that, that ruling is wrong on the law, and we're appealing it to the Arizona Supreme Court on behalf of our voter clients in Arizona. But let me just say here that, you know, th- this judge found on two grounds that he was going to grant the motion to dismiss by Congressman Gosar, Congressman Biggs, and State Representative Mark Fincham. One was that ground that there was no private right of action for voters to challenge the eligibility of candidates for being disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And yet somehow they have still a private right of action to challenge them if they don't meet the age qualifications or if they don't meet the citizenship qualifications mm. or the residency qualifications, all of which are in the Constitution. That, that somehow still exists, but he was willing to carve out this exception. <laughs> Uh, which really is, is is Arizona carving out an exception or exemption from the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And, and that, I don't think, should stand. The second ground he used was with the Qualifications Clause of the Constitution, which is the clause that talks about Congress having the authority to determine who gets seated, mm-hmm. and extending that to suggesting that states have no authority whatsoever to determine who gets on their ballot for running for Congress. So if his decision is able to stand, a 14-year-old can now declare their candidacy for Congress in Arizona, and there's no ability to challenge their eligibility because, under his theory, only Congress can decide whether or not they can serve. Or even you know, beyond that, a foreign national could run for office. Vladimir Putin could declare his candidacy yeah. for Congress in Arizona. And based on Judge Corey's ruling from Maricopa County Superior Court, there's no way you could challenge that. That's only for Congress's side. So we're cha- we're going to be appealing both of these, Good. Uh, you know, ruling, you know, these issues uh, in this ruling. And I, I do think that the Arizona Supreme Court is going to need to take this up, because if they let that stand, then, as I said, uh, it's going to completely eviscerate the ability to challenge congressional candidates when they are not eligible to be on the ballot. I don't know. A 14-year-old running for office in Arizona might be a step up from uh, the way things are going there. It might be. <laughs> but now, uh, so so that's basically uh, a court in North Carolina throws out the, the case. A court in Arizona throws out the case. The only one so far to even get close to the merits of it is this Georgia judge, this administrative law judge, who also is apparently a corporate tax attorney. Uh, at the same time, I'm not sure how that works in Georgia. But if if the judge there recommends against barring against barring uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from the ballot, what then is that that for that particular challenge? And and frankly, what would that tell us about the ability to challenge others who have engaged or in or gave aid or comfort to the insurrection or or those like Donald Trump who could also be challenged for actually engineering the insurrection uh, if he decides to run in 2024. Well, I think, I think there's a first point to, to highlight here, which is significant, right, which is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, through her attorneys, did everything they could to try to stop this hearing from even taking place last Friday, to stop anyone from putting her under oath to answer these questions. And they lost that fight. They went to federal court. 
they made all the arguments they made in the Cawthorn case, mm -hmm. and they got the complete reverse outcome. They lost it, and it was a 73-page ruling that I said by Judge Amy Totenberg, senior judge in the federal district court there in the Northern District of Georgia. They're appealing that to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, although interestingly they chose not to file a motion for an emergency stay to block the hearing before the Federal Appeals Court, which might indicate that they knew they weren't going to get that either. So what's happened now, independent of what happened at the hearing on Friday and what this administrative law judge will do, but what's happened is the door has now been opened for somebody like Donald Trump or anyone else who took an oath of office and engaged in insurrection from being held accountable uh, in Georgia. That door is now open because the precedent is there for voters to be able to challenge them based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And assuming it's upheld by the 11th Circuit, uh, that means there will be a challenge, I think, to Donald Trump appearing on the Georgia ballot in 2024. In addition, you know, then we have what the administrative law judge will do. He will make a recommendation uh, to the Secretary of State, either that she's qualified or she's disqualified. The Secretary of State will have to accept or reject that recommendation. And then either side has the opportunity to appeal this into the Georgia courts. So this fight is not over, but I, I just want to highlight that leading into the hearing, we had already won a critical precedent that establishes that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is alive and well Good. and will be used against future insurrectionists who seek to run for office, including Donald Trump. John Boniface is the co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org. They are working with voters around the country to hold these candidates accountable under the Constitution. Uh, and uh, I know that Marjorie Taylor Greene kept calling them funded. I'm not sure what that means. I know that they would welcome your funding at freespeechforpeople.org. John, really appreciate your time today. You can find more at freespeechforpeople.org and on the Twitters at FSFP. John, I got to get out. I really appreciate your time. Hope to talk to you guys again soon. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Keep up the good work, my friend. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Gary Baca, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll talk about Twitter tomorrow, I suspect. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.